Welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Hostility to government interference in the private sector, communications business in general, is an attitude which has defined the American right at least since the Reagan years. Regulation, meddling, and just lawmaking in general that impacts business interests is sort of taboo. Of course, there's always been tension that exists on the right, namely between the libertarian-minded faction, the more conservative ones. In Washington, D.C., that's captured by the differences between the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. The American conservative Conservative versus Reason Magazine. The shared concern is tyrannical government and the shrinking of individual liberty. The split is over whether or not you can use government power to shape public life and the discourse to protect rights. In this republic, the government is ordered in such a way that its purpose is to protect rights, which pre-exist all of this. It doesn't create rights or bestow them. It secures rights. At least that's the theory. Roe v. Wade is a pretty obvious challenge to that, in my opinion. But if we have a natural right to freedom of speech, assembly and association, are those things just erased because you said yes to Facebook's terms of service or Twitter's? When Facebook is the most supercharged tool that we've ever seen, that mankind has ever invented, to organize and gather across zip codes and time zones to coordinate on political matters and organize ourselves to protest, rally, march, or whatever, why are we allowing Mark Zuckerberg and all the people like him of the world and all of their busybody, entry-level staffers to be the deciders of who gets to speak and what is truth? I've got a great guest on here today to talk about that. I'm joined at the table by Robbie Suave. He's a senior editor at Reason and author of the forthcoming book, Tech Panic. It's your second one, Robbie. Congratulations. Thanks so much. How was writing the second one versus the first? Uh, I think the process was a little bit more difficult this time, uh, probably just because of the stress of the pandemic. But uh, it, it felt fun doing it because this topic has gotten so much more important as I was writing it every day. There's more stories about com uh, fears about big tech and censorship and bias. And it really seems to keep heating up to almost be the defining issue of, of our political conversation. Yeah, I mean, I know you started this well over a year ago. I mean, the, the conversation has always been sort of similar about big tech and, and the fear that it might get to be too powerful and need to be regulated. The past year has just really thrown uh, lighter fluid on all of that. I mean, did you ever like for one moment think that maybe... <laughs> maybe you were just going to have to start over from the beginning because the, because the conversation has just moved so fast. Yeah, well, as I was writing the book, Donald Trump was still on the platforms. And then as I was getting ready to hand the book in, uh, his in my I would argue that his rhetoric it causes, causes or significantly contributes to the attack on the Capitol. And then he is kicked off uh, on many platforms. So the, the, that comes to pass. And I had to, had to work that in there. Well, we're going to talk about Tech Panic, your right. upcoming book. It comes out in September, right? That's right. Um, and I'm excited to get into it, but I didn't want to let you off the hook too easy in hawking your book. So I brought on somebody uh, to sort of back up the other side of the argument uh, and, and discuss this with you a little bit more. We're joined out in California by our friend Nate Hotchman, uh, Claremont Institute, a former member of Young Voices and a friend. It's nice to have you with us, Nate. 
Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we begin and dive into it, just want to, for all of you out there who are just tuning in, if you are watching and you are joining us for the first time, please do subscribe. You can find us on YouTube and any of your podcatchers and on social media. Just search Rightly AJ, give us a follow, and then stay in tune for all of the upcoming episodes. New episodes of this show come out every Thursday, and we've now got Gothics as part of our family here at Rightly. She's an awesome video creator on YouTube, and she's doing a series on cancel culture. You like cancel culture. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing about cancel culture. I'm very much against cancel culture. (laughs) Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. That's Robbie's first book. But uh, all right, let's, let's dig into it here on Big Tech. Robbie, what is the premise of your book, Tech Panic? Sure. The premise of the book is that while there, I know there are all these people uh, on, on, on the left and increasingly on the right who are very interested in regulating social media for a variety of reasons, everything to the addictiveness of smartphones to uh, perceptions of political bias and censorship on the platforms, often political bias and censorship directed against conservatives. That's why Republicans want to do something. My, the premise of my book is simple. We should not do that. That's wrong. Not to say that there aren't problems with social media. I, I, I have, I've written frequently for Reason and other places about a lot of individual content moderation decisions that I think were wrongly handled. Uh, but the solution, regulation, is not a solution at all. It will make the problem worse. Uh, the, the worst fears would come to pass if, uh, if legislation handed more power over the government to, to set these companies policies for them, to empower bureaucrats to investigate them. I mean, already we've had the heads of these companies called before Congress, I don't know how many times, and asked just ridiculously insulting questions that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with, with how their platforms work. I mean, the government is has no idea how to regulate social media. It doesn't even understand social media. But the federal bureaucrats who would actually do the investigating and the regulating are more hostile to conservative ideas than, than Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. You would empower the worst sort of people to make things even worse for conservative speech. So that's my argument. Principles, I, I think principles dictate that we shouldn't do this. You talked about how mm-hmm. uh, being pro uh, pro free market uh, against government intervention has been a has been a long held Republican belief. So to violate that, I think you have to say we have to do it because these are compelling practical reasons we have to do it. I think those reasons don't hold up at all. You're embracing modernity too much. I mean, I, I the long held conservative belief thing I think goes back to Reagan. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, the pivot point is Reagan. It's like, is this the guy who defines all conservatism? It's hundreds of years old as a as an idea. I want to hand it off to Nate. Like. Nate, are you panicking? Are you panicking about big tech, uh, as suggests Robbie's book title? Well, I'm concerned about big tech. And I mean, I think Robbie and I have talked about this a little bit before offline. I think Robbie agrees that there are issues with tech that need to be addressed. We just might disagree specifically about the, the prescriptions for that. So to be clear, I agree with my libertarian friends that there are a lot of ways to regulate big tech that would be incredibly foolish and would uh, empower the worst kind of bureaucrats who have no idea what they're talking about um, in ways that would almost certainly redound um, to the to the harm of conservatives and the conservatives who are worried about tech censorship. On principle, however, I think what I and a lot of my conservative friends who are interested in amending Section 230 are interested in is saying that Section 230 is a set of special protections that are given to tech companies. It's not a free market. Tech companies are benefiting from specific targeted liability protections. And it's entirely reasonable for the government to say, if you're benefiting from those liability protections, we should expect you 
to abide by certain codes of conduct, right? You know, not deplatforming entire ideologies that you disagree with, for one, is the one that we're talking about right now, right? So I'm not talking about intervening in the markets in a market that's completely free and regulating or breaking up tech companies necessarily. We're saying if you enjoy these specific protections, then you should abide by a certain set of ground rules. And that's something that conservatives have traditionally been perfectly happy to do. And it's only in recent decades that we've decided that that's somehow unacceptable. Right. And so with Section 230 law, one of the dividing lines is whether or not you are a certain kind of company, right? So there's like a communications company and then there's publishers, right? Do I have that correct? And part of the the debate about social media companies is which one they actually fall into. I I would say that's a little bit of a misunderstanding, actually, about Section 230. It really offers – it doesn't separate platforms from publishers at all. Uh, It it says that online services are – the 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 person who – actually writes the statement on social media is respond is it can be held liable for it not the platform and it doesn't matter if the platform does has editor makes other editorial decisions or controls now i i will agree with nate that it is a you can call it a special protection if you want you're right if this is not far, part of the first amendment if they want to get rid of it they can there's nothing i don't think there's anything in the universe that says section 230 has to exist mm-hmm. i i think purely on practical grounds the result of well of certainly of getting rid of it would be uh Punit would be less conservative speech online because the more liability you expose Facebook and Twitter to, the more likely they are to actually take down provocative right wing speech. Um, they, I mean, they might actually have to limit your ability to post at will if they could be. Sued I think for part of the thing that annoys me about this whole discourse is one of the things that you're mentioning here is like conservatives kind of stand to lose in the case that we actually like change the way that social media companies are regulated and start treating them as publishers. There's the idea that yes, there will be less conservative speech online. I think that's true. And just using that as the logic for like what is going to be good for the country as a whole maybe misses the point to just like our news ecosystem is out of control. The social media climate is so rabid and extreme. Like maybe everybody needs to be losing a little bit more and have us dragged back to center. I mean, that's certainly what the left thinks, which is why it's so interesting and why I think Republicans are wrong to be looking for regulatory solutions. The, The broadly speaking, the viewpoint, I think, I don't think Nate would disagree with this, of the of the progressive Democrats is that there's far too much crazy misinformation online, and we mm-hmm. must punish these companies either by revoking Section 230, which is something that Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden support, or breaking them up entirely, which is something Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders support. Uh, punish, you know, b- destroy these companies for their role in supporting conservative speech. That's what progressives are saying, and Republicans seem to be kind of saying like. Yeah, well, we should do that, but not for that reason. But we're kind of going to think about doing that, and it makes no sense to me. Nate? I think that's a little bit of a misunderstanding. There's certainly, like I said, there are plenty of Republicans and conservatives who have ideas on tech that I think are eminently silly. And I think the practical objections that you hear from a lot of libertarians are are correct. Um, The most intelligent conservatives and Republicans who are talking about this are talking about amending Section 230, which I think is the best way forward. We shouldn't, I agree, repealing Section 230, the first order effects of that would probably redound uh, to the harm of, of conservatives on a lot of these platforms. It might destroy the platforms altogether. We can debate whether or not that would be a good thing uh, in, in the net uh, overall or not. But the the best way to approach this and the way that I think is entirely consonant with conservative principles is to say, hey, we have these liability protections 
that you're welcome to have, but if you have them, you have to abide by certain standards of free speech. Maybe you, we just hold you to the same standards that we hold uh, you know, the uh, people in a, in a public forum to in terms of the First Amendment. That seems eminently reasonable to me and pretty easy to enforce, actually. Um, but the, the, that is not a violation of any free market or limited government principle. It's not actually expanding government power at all. It's saying there are a set of liability protections that you can have. But if you have them, you have to abide by these standards. And that's not what we're asking them to do today, which I think is Robbie, these platforms act like publishers. They act like publishers every day. In Twitter's uh, news section, you get what is going on in the world, and it is through a specific framing. They're telling you what is going on in the streets with protests and riots, and they tell you exactly why those things are happening. They tell you why people are protesting in the streets against mask mandates, and they give you a leftward spin on all yeah. of it. They kick but off they can't the be sued for that. See, they don't have liability protection. The, the company statements don't have liability protection. So, tell me more. Tell me more about yeah, that. So I've not seen a lawsuit against them for this. It's only the well. It usually it has a slant. It's not usually it's not factually inaccurate. But if it, if it was libelous, you mm -hmm. could sue them for the for the company's official statements. Um, so I think this proposal to just amend Section two thirty. Obviously, it's, I think it's better. Um, I think the practical issues are considered. Who would decide? So you'd have to have some. What, what I presume you're proposing is some kind of. Well, you can't discriminate on the basis of ideology or, or, or political orientation or something, but then we have to get in, well, is QAnon a political orientation? I mean, this starts to get dodgy and thorny what action they can take. And at some point, you're telling a private company that they can't, they, they have to platform speech. They don't want to platform. Remember that Facebook is selling ads. So in some sense, they're just trying to create a product that allows them to sell ads more. And you, you, the government, are saying you don't like the product I you're saying. I think we are so far beyond Facebook's motives being just about profitability and ads. They are trying to shape the world in the way that their little employees and busy bees want to see it. This is why they are so, so involved in social justice issues and trying to take a stand on everything. But if that's true, why have they mostly shaped it in a way that benefits conservatives? The top 10 yeah. articles on Facebook at any one, and most days, at most points in time, are Ben Shapiro, Daily Wire, Dan Montino. Breitbart, Tucker Carlson, Fox News. This has been the most powerful uh, tool for conservative speech ever invented. Uh, it, it, the main, the, whatever biases social media has against conservatives are dwarfed by the mainstream media's biases. None of these people could ever get a column placed in the New York Times or the Washington Post to save their lives, and they don't have to because and we have a vast and unregulated social media space that Republicans want to ruin for some reason. Is that a greater good, Nate? Well, <laughs> well, Tom Cotton couldn't get a, a, a call in place in the New York Times, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily a standard to evaluate their uh, their credibility or not. But look, I mean, I want to go back to something that Robbie said earlier, which is the language he was using. You're forcing, you're using the government to force these platforms to platform speech they don't want. That's not what we're actually talking about. And this is the misunderstanding, I think, on principle that you hear from the libertarian argument against doing anything about Section 230. By all means, let's talk about the practical considerations. Let's talk about what the best way forward to do would be in terms of the actual pragmatic concerns that people have. But the objection on principle, which is what I heard Robbie saying early on in this piece or in this, in this segment, was is, is, does not make sense in the context of amending Section 230. There's no coercion here. This is entirely voluntary. It's the government saying, if you want these protections, abide by these rules. If you don't want these protections, by all means, go crazy, deplatform who you want. But you are benefiting from specific targeted protections right now. If you want those from the government, just like getting a government contract, 
then you have to abide by certain rules. That is not the government forcing anyone to do anything. It's not even an expansion of government power in any meaningful way. It's simply saying these are the rules you abide by if you want this specific sweetheart deal that we're giving to you and not to other companies. And by the way, again, this is something that conservatives have traditionally supported. In fact, it's something that libertarians have traditionally supported. This is why the Mises Institute, for example, uh, says that the true free market solution to big tech would be repealing Section 230. So, you know, there's there's a variety of different things that we can do, but the, the idea that this is a problem on principle is, is it does not make a lot of sense when you actually look at what we're talking about. I think it would expand government because you would need some kind of you know, board or commission. I mean, the Senate has talked about it being the Senate, you know, to decide. I think I think the, the, the form, the actual proposal that existed legislatively proposed by Holly or Cruz or someone like that was to have you know, they would decide they would have to you know, the social media companies would have to like reapply for Section 230 protection and demonstrate that they haven't mm-hmm. engaged in this kind of bias. And then there would be like an approval process. And it seems to me like that would be growing the government and would also create horrible opportunity. I mean, it would cause Facebook to lobby the government in even more aggressive ways. It would it could tend to benefit better connected companies. I think there are considerable practical limitations with this proposal. Okay, I I agree with you uh, about the point you just said that it's not co- it's not coercion per se. I still wonder if a court might find that the government saying you can only have this kind of liability protection if you platform this speech. It would not surprise me if some court thought that violated the, violated the First Amendment for the government to to promise some benefit only to you, only if you follow these exact speech rules. Um, also, I, I mean, again, the, 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 li- the liability would just be ruinous for these companies. Maybe you think it's fair if they suffered. I, I would actually tend, to, if you want to make it fair, you want to say why other publishers are subject to libel, I would actually be for kind of just like fixing this the other way. I, I think uh, I, the less people get to sue other people for for you know saying wrong things, the better. Um, it's a gift to tr- actually getting rid of Section two thirty would be the greatest gift to trial attorneys that ever existed. Uh, by the way, so I, I would I would almost want to fix it the other way. I don't think everyone rushing to sue each other all the time is a great way to handle things. And Robbie, I was I was reading one of the the previews of your book, and you talk about the idea of censorship. And you mentioned, and, and tell me if I got this wrong, that what you see happening on Facebook and on Twitter with the companies blocking people from the platforms, kicking people off, silencing everyday people for having wrong think or opinions or saying the wrong thing about vaccines or masks does not meet uh, the metric of censorship. Why is that? Because I mean, that, that seems to go right over my head in terms of logic. You are literally censoring people's ability to speak and setting these guidelines that were not in the terms of service. It's like a moving bar every time. I mean, it's censorship in a metaphorical sense. If we're using like literal language that only the government can, can engage in censorship, I think is like the technical definition of censorship. I would still, we can still use it, call it censorship informally. I, th- I think at that point it starts to get into the argument over whether like the January 6th attack was a riot or an insurrection. Whatever. It was a really bad thing, um, it, and, it, and it, it is bad. I, I have, and I've criticized it all the time. Uh, the two that stand out most recently is, is Facebook and Twitter's treatment of the Hunter Biden New York Post story was abominable. I mean, Twitter actually apologized. They agree it was really that they got well, that's that really good wrong. they apologize, Robbie, but I feel like your position on this is always like, thank you, sir, may I have another, in terms of big tech overstepping what they say they believe in and completely betraying free speech principles again and again and again 
against powerful people and everyday people. And it's never enough for libertarians to be like, you know what, maybe there is a problem here and a threat to our society <laughs> and just, our ability to speak freely and associate with each but other. But I think our society is threatened by the New York Post publishing articles that are wrong, garbage lies all the time. And I don't think the solution is to like impose some in insane liability burden on the New York Times or break it up or regular. I mean, these are media as a libertarian, my role is to is to criticize these companies, and I do it all the time. But there's no part of me that goes, and maybe I would feel differently if I thought mm -hmm. exposing these companies to crippling liability would be like better for some for someone I support or something. I'm just so unpersuaded by that argument that it's very easy for me to default to principle because I don't think what you're saying would make things better. Right. Well, so I think this actually exposes one of the important um, questions at, at the root of this debate, which is a big part of your your disposition towards this question within the sort of conservative spectrum has to do with how bad you think the issue of big tech is, right? I think libertarians are people who have the sort of don't amend section 230, it's good as it is, or it's better than the alternatives as it is position, um, think that big tech isn't as big of an issue, isn't as existential of a threat to basic small r Republican norms uh, as those of us on, on my side of the aisle do. Uh, I think that the, the libertarians, the, the people who, sort of the, who have the sort of Cato Institute view on, on this, um, haven't really thought about this adequately in terms of the big picture, which is what kind of country do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a country where our entire public square is mediated through uh, a few specific companies that clearly have an ideological bias and get to decide what gets to be said and what doesn't get to be said to the point where they're actually capable potentially of swaying elections? I mean – there, this obviously this is up for debate, but if you look at how close the 2020 election was, it's not unreasonable to suggest that Twitter suppressing the New York Post story about Hunter Biden actually might have swung the election for Joe Biden and Donald Trump would be president if it weren't for Twitter. So they can apologize for that. I'm happy they apologized. But the fact is they're still having an enormously outsized effect on how our government works and who our government works for. Uh, and that, to me, should be a question that makes us go back to first principles and really think about how to apply those creatively in the moment, rather than sort of mouthing the same bromides about, you know, Section 230 being good as it is, um, because it is actually a question of the survival of political liberty in the 21st century in America. Um, I think the idea that Twitter is responsible for the outcome of the election is as farcical and ridiculous as the assertion that Facebook was responsible for the 20 for Trump's win in 2016 which is what Democrats said it was hilarious and I thought you know their obsession with Facebook as the worst thing ever and Facebook gave us Donald Trump because like a couple Russian accounts ran ads maybe sort of sometimes that was totally ridiculous and conservatives saw it as totally ridiculous and then in the next election cycle those sore losers said the exact same thing you know we love to blame the newest technology because it's new and exciting and we don't understand it existential panic all Always for the new thing, never for the old thing. Doesn't matter that cable news is a 24-hour disinformation network in favor of Trump or against it, depending on which channel you're choosing. Radio is the same. Every new media thing creates panic. Oh my God, our, our world is thrown into chaos. Actually, for my book, I found examples of like editorials in mainstream newspapers against the radio during its invention because they were worried about because people wouldn't be reading newspapers anymore. So they had every incentive to drum up this moral panic against radio. Well, let's talk, back the time I think that's important. So let's let's talk about first principles and, and history here because Nate, I, I got a preview of one of your articles coming out here on the history of the fairness doctrine and sort of splits between the conservative and libertarian movement on that issue. 
issue. So yeah, like radio comes along and at some point, like what, 1946, you end up with the Fairness Doctrine because there's concern about these big media companies which are going to have a outsized impact on controlling the discourse, the public square, and they're going to do it um, in, uh, in like a Wild West kind of environment. And so you get the Fairness Doctrine and you have to basically have fairness. You have to split things between both sides, present both points of view to keep your licenses to be on air. Um, this is kept in place and supported by a lot of the conservative establishment up until Reagan. Reagan has libertarians whispering in his ear, and then he scraps the entire thing, much to the chagrin, chagrin, much to the uh, dislike of liberty of, uh, of conservatives in the establishment because this was the kind of thing that had given them protection for so long to be in the mainstream media discourse at all. Phyllis Schlafly credited uh, her ability to actually campaign against the ERA to the fairness doctrine, even though she was only able to be on air just a little bit. The only person who liked it was Rush Limbaugh and then Fox News. And then you know what? We have a horrible media ecosystem. The entire media ecosystem is based on choose your own adventure, a choose your own reality. And I don't believe that anything has been better since the fairness doctrine went away. Like the media system is awful. Truth is in the trash can. I mean, there's been a widespread proliferation of conservative content. I mean, there's more it, 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 as a right. But that's not person, the ultimate good. The spread of conservative propaganda versus liberal propaganda does not mean it's good. Well, now who's the censor? Now you're saying we no. should confine it to just one or two. There's there's only two political alternatives and they should have equal time and we're going to be in charge of saying what they're allowed to say and they're not going to venture outside that. I, th I think the consent, the, the, the boring consensus that endured for what for the for the latter half of the 20th yeah. century that gave us the great society and the Vietnam War and all that. I mean, there's like lots of bad policy was made in that. I, I'm not sure. Our, maybe our media ecosystem was less um, celebrity driven, re, like reality TV and better in that way. But I'm not sure. I'm, I don't think Peter, people were necessarily better informed. Yeah, Nate, I think exactly what he's getting to is like we have more access to uh, dissident viewpoints than ever. Like we can really hear from the far ends of both sides right now in an unmoderated way, which, which is good. Like you don't want CBS and ABC news to have the final word on what is fact because they had a conservative yeah. on for five minutes to offer yeah. the other point Down, of view. Overthrow uh, Dan Rather. That's my, that's right. my and point like, of view. And that's, <laughs> and that's like, that's how you get that kind of stuff. But I keep going back to like, what is actually been good for our, our body politic and our civics. And I feel like drinking from the fountain of polarized media and saying that we are free is going to make us less free in the long run. I want to give Nate the floor Certainly. here. No, I agree. And I mean, this is, I think, gets to Robbie's point earlier about how there's always existential panic about new forms of media communication. The difference, there are a lot of differences between big tech, but one of them is that the existential panic over something like radio actually resulted in a you know regulation that dealt with the adverse effects of radio and got people like Father John Coughlin you know off off of the air called the fairness doctrine it was supported by Pat Buchanan Newt Gingrich the NRA uh, Phyllis Schlafly a lot of different Republicans and uh, famous conservative uh, politicians and figures and commentators until it was repealed by Ronald Reagan uh, and it was upheld as not violating the First Amendment in court so to Robbie's earlier point as well about how uh, a court wouldn't uphold an amendment to Section 230 um, on First Amendment grounds. We've actually dealt with this in the past in terms of jurisprudence around media regulation. It's been upheld as constitutional. So the difference now is that this really is the Wild West for the first time since the invention of modern media communications uh, in tech. Uh, and we have 
a really vocal portion of the conservative movement that is resisting things that were seen as common sense by conservatives just a generation or two ago, um, which is the source of, I think, of a lot of our problems with media today. I, 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 I do agree. Uh, obviously, the, the, the Supreme Court did uh, approve of that regime earlier. Yeah, so today's, this is National Broadcasting Corporation versus United States to, and also Red Lion Broadcasting Corporation. Today's Supreme Court yeah. is really pro-free speech in a libertarian yeah. sense, and uh, I, I think you might very well get a different <laughs> a different outcome this time. I mean, is that good, though? Is, there, I mean, is I, that yeah, really I good? It's good. I, I, I want to stop the government from setting rules on what you're allowed to, to say, which occasionally means that there's some lower private authority who is getting to tell you what to say. But I think that actually benefits the exact kind of uh, it, it actually right. benefits the the political point of view that Nate represents uh, that is making has has made <laughs> Trumpism possible and successful for four years and could again. Nate, how would you actually go about applying the principles of the fairness doctrine to social media companies? Because that that sort of analogy that cross over to me just doesn't quite make sense when you think about how these companies are structured and what they're doing with information. I, I get that like you're not you aren't arguing that the fairness doctrine needs to be revived and reapplied necessarily, no. but you need to take yeah, those perfect. ideas. What do you do and how do you extract the right idea from that to apply it to this? Yeah, no, the fairness doctrine was uh, a policy that was designed primarily for radio. It, it wouldn't cross over to something as complicated as tech. The argument I was making in the piece that you're reading, which is coming out in, I think, the next print issue of um, the American Conservative, uh, is that the principled argument for the fairness doctrine and its support by a healthy portion of conservatives and Republicans and it being upheld in the Supreme Court provides a framework with which we can think about attacking the problem of big tech from uh, a principled, limited government constitutional view, uh, which is that we're not going to use coercive government regulation, just like the Fairness Doctrine wasn't using coercive government regulation. It was saying, in the case of the, the radio broadcasters, if you want these specific government-provided licenses to access the scarce resources of the airwaves, you have to provide a basic fair view. It's that scarcity part that doesn't make sense anymore. The scarcity thing is just like right out the window. We're, we're in the age of well, unlimited... I, well, it, except the Section 230 protections are scarce in a way, right? They are targeted protections for a specific kind of platform, uh, and they are only insured to those specific kinds of platforms. There's no rule that those platforms are entitled to them. They're certainly not entitled to them uh, by anything written into the Constitution. Um, that, that is a positive provision given to them by the government. Uh, and the libertarian position is that the government shouldn't ask for anything in return. It should be absolutely neutral, which to me doesn't make any sense. The government should be saying, if you get these protections, you should be acting broadly in the interests of the American people. That actually isn't a big government position at all. It's just saying government policy should be good for America. What if, what uh, and, if, and that's the part of the libertarian argument that I'm confused about. Well, what if, I mean, again, I, I mean, I, I know conservatives don't like when libertarians make slippery slope arguments, but what if all of a sudden Democrats <laughs> grow their power or their structural power in the U.S. government and they tweak your revision to be uh, no social media platform will enjoy liability protection if it platforms right-wing disinformation or if it if it engages in anti-vaccine i mean already this is what the democrats are trying to do we had last week or the week before we had the a white house press secretary uh talking about specific accounts she wants facebook to take down they are making this major push on on coronavirus disinformation the government is 
trying to strong arm Facebook into making those changes. I think this is absolutely inappropriate. I, it has a bad track record. Uh, Facebook, um, at, again, at the behest of the U.S. government, would not allow you to post to write about the lab leak theory, for instance, for months. Mm-hmm. They now revise that because more people have come around to the idea that that's at least possible, the lab leak theory of COVID-19. So there's a terrible track record, in my view, of, of, of the squelching of discussion of coronavirus, Again, done because the government was asking for it, and they're never really asking, right? So again, you get we, we why aren't maybe we should be we should be doing the exact opposite thing. We should be defending big tech against big governments. Uh, the, the the censorship is happening because uh, because the government has this power they can hold over them, and if they don't get what they want, they're going to regulate them or break them up. I I just run up against this feeling, like, and I said it earlier with like no matter what they do, the answer is always we need to be as hands off as possible. Facebook as like the public square is a real thing. And I, I get the libertarian argument that like, you know, you can still go out in the street and like scream your conspiracy theories or just like regular political opinions and no one's going to stop you or use force against you, right? Like the ultimate bad is the government's monopoly on force. Right. But Facebook blocking you from their platform can at least temporarily destroy your life, business and profitability. It's like we see it with YouTube creators all the time. I mean, if my mom says the wrong thing about vaccines tomorrow and her account gets tossed off Facebook because they selectively target her for whatever reason, so goes the business account and our family trophy store account, which is connected to that. That will also be taken down at least temporarily. And then you have the business There's the competition in that town who gets the obvious advantage because they were politically compliant and they get more business. Who is a greater threat of saying the wrong thing and losing their livelihood? The the person you just described or you? It's you and me. We work for media companies and who could fire us at any time for saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And it might be unfair and it might suck. That happens to people all the time. That's a pretty common human experience. The YouTube creators have far more creative freedom than those of us who work for traditional media companies. We have so much ability to defend ourselves, though. Like, we're able to rally people around our our cause and get our message out there that, like, we've been censored or they took down my tweet. So can they. They No, 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 people cannot access that as easily as we can. They don't have megaphones at their disposal to defend themselves against these companies, which are like vindictive. I mean, just like another thing that just is weird to me. Like yesterday, PayPal announced that they're partnering with the Anti-Defamation League to start closing down the accounts, and the initiative is going to focus on white supremacists, anti-government, or anti-government organizations. Reason magazine. <laughs> right. and, uh, and anybody propagating anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti-Hispanic, anti-Asian hate. They don't have any credibility on being able to discern who the real bad guys are. Right. They don't. They're going to close all of us out of the public square of using good apps, good companies, with reputations that are at least somewhat deserving. I, I disagree with that. I think that's Why? a terrible move. No, I, no, I disagree okay. with what they're doing. Mostly because I don't like the Anti-Defamation League, and they said they're going to share the results with law enforcement. Yeah, but these are the, <laughs> these are the companies that big tech companies go to partner with. They go to partner with the ADLs of the world because they like them. It doesn't matter if you do, but right. they do. And they're going to keep doing partnerships with them. There are schools now doing partnerships with the ADL. I think we talked about that right. last time. Right. Their power is ascendant. They are not credible or defenders of freedom, but they're the people with the access. Like, we are not. We're going to be on the outs. Right, but going after big tech is like going so, on the, after the last link in that chain. You're right that there, you know, cultural wokeism, whatever you want to call it, is something I've been just as critical of as the other yeah. people in this discussion. Um, but that has to be targeted, like in the schools, the universities. It's it, like the 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 fact that eventually, at the end of the day, there's too many left leaning content moderators at Facebook or Twitter or whatever is like the last part of the problem, and you're not actually solving anything to go after them, and you might be making it worse. 
Well, it's not. It's not though. It's actually. I mean, we're, what we're talking about fundamentally is the enormous unchecked power of these companies, where you know Google might literally be more powerful than the U.S. government at this point. There is. I mean, there is. If you look at what happened to someone like Donald Trump, right? If you look at how he disappeared from the public square after getting deplatformed. That is an enormous unchecked amount of power in that concentrated hands of a very few small amount of people who have no accountability to the rest of us, who now have an enormous amount of political power over the, the, the actual conduct of American democracy. So I don't Robbie, feel like my, Donald I mean, Trump has disappeared is, from the public square, <laughs> just for the record. His, his, his voice, his voice absolutely has. I mean, the only way that he can communicate through people is through press releases, you know, read by Sean Hannity on Fox News. And he he's packs out stadiums. Much less powerful right, he's doing that again. The, he's still far less powerful in terms of his, his power to control the day-to-day -day conversation in American politics than he was when he had access to Facebook and Twitter. But the overall question that I have for Robbie is, is – you know, you say you disagree with PayPal, uh, you know, uh, partnering with ADL. You say you disagree with Twitter censoring the New York Post story about Hunter Biden. You know, you can disagree with all these things, but at what point does it actually reach a limit where you say this is unacceptable? This is no longer something that we, as a sovereign nation, can accept, right? At, at what point, you know, do you, do you, does the the constriction of access to the public square become so significant? Where, you know, again, another example, someone like Milo Yiannopoulos disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, I am not going to defend the things that Milo Yiannopoulos said. He's a clown, right? But that amount of power to completely make someone disappear, to literally unperson them, is unheard of as far as I know in American history. So at what point do we actually say that's enough? This is fundamentally a threat to Republican government as we've traditionally understood it, rather than just saying, well, I disagree, but the government shouldn't do anything. Well, I disagree, but we shouldn't do anything. Like, at what point do we actually say, no, this actually is an existential threat to the battle way drones. that America has always understood it's, it's itself. It's when Facebook starts developing battle drones. <laughs> it's like, with, with you guys, well, I mean, yeah. like a line. No, like with, like with reason, like it's all about like, with, there's no force involved. And so it's right. like, all right, so at what point do they have to like start making robots that are like going to start patrolling their, their blocks to us to be like, this is a little bit dangerous to being I'll in a free society. I'll just, I just want to gently point out that even, you keep saying, well, it's the public square. It's the new public uh -huh. square. There are rules on the public public square too. And Donald Trump arguably broke them. So I, you know, we, I don't know that I think he should be banned from Facebook for all time, but he engaged in speech that was very reckless, not rules. just by the standards of social media, but by any standard for speech that inspired and caused people to smash all the windows of the Capitol building and people died and it was really bad. And you know what? If you're on a train and you start, it's a train is a public service. You start saying crazy things. They're going to throw you off the train. I've seen it happen. So we can't fall back on this like well anything goes in any public space so they should be treated like that you know what there are there are rules which is, which there are rules there too he broke them right that's how it goes but but again that's that's not what anyone's arguing the, the fundamental question is about the power concentrating the hands of people who get to make those rules and how they exercise it and the fact that they now have a long pattern and track record of exercising that power in ways uh, that are arbitrary, applying those rules unevenly, applying them specifically to go after people that they disagree with ideologically. We have example after example of that. The Hunter Biden New York Post story is one of many, right? So the, the Trump, you know, the, the Trump example is one that we can certainly debate, but it's not just about Trump. It's about the fact that we know that this unchecked power in the hands of a small group of ideological actors 
has been used to crush people that we would all agree don't don't uh, deserve to get booted out of the public square. And we know that they're going to continue to do it unless we actually stand up and do something about it. Yeah, the thing that, I mean, Nate, earlier you were talking about like Donald Trump has been sort of removed from the public square and that he has significantly less power over the conversation uh, in this country than he did before. And I, I kind of like cringed when you said like power over the conversation because like, that went very badly, I thought, when he had power over all of the discourse in this country. <laughs> I don't I don't love the idea of no, hold on. I don't love the idea of people like Donald Trump who have these just weird, obvious authoritarian instincts being able to use whatever means they have on social media to start rallying people up, even if it obviously breaks like some of the basic terms of service for those platforms. On the other hand, it's a republic if you can keep it, not if Mark Zuckerberg can. And I I get the frustration. Like nobody, nobody signed off on these people being the people who defend democracy. That's not the way this is supposed to work. It's it's for us to do or, or nobody. I mean, but their instinct was to keep him on the platform for as long as possible uh, out of a sort of free speech civil society kind of idea that it was better for people to see his speech. They kept with that for a long time, even though I think he tweeted a lot of things that were very much, you could argue, were over the lines of, of terms of service. And they held out till the very end. So you say our speech is not safe in their hands. And right, again, we can say things that they did wrong. But I don't, I, I don't see it as an existential threat, uh, given how actually how they handled things in the Trump years. Again, right, so it's not fundamentally about what Trump did or didn't do. Even if we ceded the point that Trump you know, violated their terms of service, when did we decide that the Facebook terms of service are the terms of service that we're going to abide by in terms of our actual political conversation and the rules that are you know, governing our political conversation? And on top of that, when did we decide that those rules of service get to be decided, arbitrated, and applied by a group of people who we know aren't going to apply them equally or fairly in the same way that ideally a, a Supreme Court justice would, although that's, you know, a controversial proposition in and of itself. You know, Stephen, I, uh, I, I accept your, your characterization of, you know, being upset about, a, you know, an authoritarian using a platform like Twitter. Presumably you'd, also, <laughs> presumably you'd also be worried or concerned about, the, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini using that platform. And Twitter has had very little to say about Ayatollah Khomeini. He's still using Twitter, yeah. uh, you know, to tweet that, He's you know, part Jews of a marginalized the world. So he can't, uh, he can't be censored. But but that's a, that gets to a serious point, right? I mean, this is just as vitriolic of a hate monger uh, as 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 anyone that, that that Twitter has banned, as far as I'm concerned. And he's still allowed to be on the platform because the actual rules of service aren't applied equally, which means that they're effectively, you know, just a a a a a, a sort of smokescreen for the exercise of political power. It's not actually about the rules of service that are written down in the text. It's about you know, pr providing the sort of prerequisite justification for, you know, Twitter's executives and their content moderators, moderators to go after people they disagree with while, you know, allowing people like the Ayatollah Khomeini to continue to say what they're saying. I, I want to give, I want to get us towards the finish line here with just like, are we, do we really believe things are going to get better or worse? Because I feel, Robbie, like I've, I've, been on your side of this argument for, for many years and I am I'm so tired mm -hmm. of having like my trust and belief in the market and these people who we kind of thought were like libertarian in their in their ethos out in Silicon Valley because they're disruptors consistently betray everything that we believe in and then just ask us to keep taking more of it. Right. And I'm not optimistic. I think they're going to get worse and worse and more and more totalitarian as we go. 
And, and again, if it's going to take like battle droids being made at Twitter for us to accept that there's a problem here, um, I just I don't know how much longer you can hold that position. Are you optimistic? Do you think this is going to get better? Because I know you're optimistic about at least content moderation getting better with AI, <laughs> like instead of humans being the people who take people off. What's the I, case? I guess my, my aspiration is content moderation becomes more AI driven. And also that I think the best way to handle things is actually to just have more customization for moderation default more to users saying this is the kind of thing I want to see and this is the kind of thing I don't want to see rather than the whole platform doing it. I'm not sure that would actually benefit conservatives because you could just have a lot of liberal users declining to see any conservative content whatsoever. It's bad, um, it's bad for the country. I, I will. I, I, yeah, so I, I don't know that I'm offering any optimism, but I will say because we did so much arguing where we very much disagree, I'm not saying there is no room whatsoever for, you know, I'm not, I'm not a full-on anarchist. I mean, maybe I am, but there are some rules. There are some, I'm sure, tweaks that can be made so terrorism and national security are areas where the government has a legitimate purpose in, you know, doing stuff. I don't know. It's the, the, their Facebook can credibly be accused of, like, allowing, like, a genocide to happen in Myanmar because they didn't understand that the, for, that the military government was, you know, was maligning the Muslim minority there. Things like the, uh, th that is areas where you could, like, you can probably compel them to take mm -hmm. actions or that are, that are leading to violence. So I'm not, there's not absolutely no front where the government can do anything or you know, I think of things like revenge porn or child pornography. There are certainly areas, there's kinds of content that fall outside of, of First Amendment protection that the government can do something about. And social media will continue to create new areas where we need to consider those aspects of the law. But the narrow, the political content bias question stuff is where I, I see the, the largest gulf between our positions because that's where I think principles would dictate we shouldn't do something and also in practical considerations i see the least need for it nate well looking forward to having a longer conversation with robbie about exactly where we diverge on principles uh at least in terms of amending section 230 but it's good to uh end on a point of agreement which is that the government should do stuff sometimes so <laughs> fine you got me <laughs> we should have a government <laughs> uh maybe So we like to round down every conversation with a little bit of personal good news, stuff that's going on in your orbits that you are happy about. Uh, I assume none of it has to do with social media companies. Um, I'll start. Uh, my book is finally headed towards being printed. Uh, I got my first book coming out here in October. It's called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And I, it's got the endorsements all come together. It looks freaking gorgeous, original artwork and some endorsements from some really awesome people. They're going to go on the back of the book. And I am just like over the moon. Just been like a year of work getting this thing all put together. And I'm not quite there yet. I got to like still like line edit just like two more, three more things, but it's going to the printers in a week and I'm, I'm ready. I am really happy for you. I have seen the cover. It looks, I, you, you are not, you know, just talking from your own ego. I'm so jealous of it. It looks really good. I am a star war. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really good. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, I, you will, you will get a copy. Um, Nate, what's, uh, what's going on with you? Anything good in your world? Well, nothing as glamorous as uh, publishing my own book, uh, and congrats uh, for that, Stephen. But I'm moving to D.C. Uh, permanently at the end of August, moving to the swamp uh, full-time, which I'm actually pretty excited about. To so. become an elite. 
Yeah, a new elite, <laughs> one might say. Yeah. Shouldn't you be moving to real America and taking up farming or ranching or something for the sake of your ideology? I'm just I kidding. Did, I'm just I kidding. Did work, I, I did work on a farm uh, in high school, so I have some populist. Oh, okay. There, but, uh, okay. Yeah. Nate, what, what part of town are you going to be living in? Davy Yard, which uh, I hear is the Republican Party to see, which means it's like 14%. It's like the condos and the brand new townhouses. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. The elites are coming to Navy Yard. All right. Robbie, what's up? (laughs) Uh, I was just in Freedom Fest with you. Uh, It's a libertarian gathering, usually in Las Vegas, but was in South Dakota. We had a great time uh, celebrating the ability to do things with friends again. An ability we should never, ever, 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 ever let the government take away from us. So easily. oh, they're about to. I'm. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Like as we're speaking, they are plotting they're, they're the uh, making us wear masks me. in our house with, <laughs> with our children. Resist. <laughs> oh boy. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for this conversation. This is the important animating subject of the day, and we're going to have to do it more here in the weeks ahead, months ahead, because your book comes out in September, right? Mm-hmm. Tech Panic. What's the subtitle of the book? Uh, Why We Shouldn't Be Afraid of Facebook and the Future. I'm afraid! All right. Robbie Suave, Nate Hodgman, thank you guys so much. All right. That's it for this edition of Right Now. Thank you for watching, listening, and or subscribing. We have a new episode for you every Thursday, along with a new weekly video from Gothics, as well as a new newsletter. Lots of new things. It's called Unfettered, uh, and that is ready for you to be getting in your inbox. It's got fun details on the making of each show and some personal stuff from yours truly. So check it out. There is a link in the info section for this episode below on your podcast or on YouTube. We will see you soon. And do remember, always ask why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. We'll see you next week.